Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. back. I hope your brains are not smoking, but it might in this session. (laughs) All right, so we're going to quickly cover six principles of textual consistency, okay? This is essentially a basic outline of what we've covered so far, all right? Principle number one. So number one. The Old Testament was preserved by Old Testament by, by the Old Testament priesthood and scribes, right? So the priest and scribes, what did they produce? What, what major document did they produce that is important to the King James Bible? The Masoretic Text. I guess my marker is giving up on me. I like this marker. But it is... Finished. All right, so number two. When Christ died on the cross, the priesthood was expanded to all believers in the body of Christ. What verse teaches that? That we are kings and priests? Revelation what? One five, one six. It's in that, yeah, in that, in that area. Very good. Um, Christ is the great high priest. Those who trust in him are made to be priests and kings under him. Uh, thus, the scriptures are preserved and passed on by us. It is your responsibility to get the, to the word of God and to have have a keen interest in the preservation of the word of God and to make sure it stays exactly as it is. Now you have a problem in Luganda. In, in the Luganda region. You have a problem in every language in this country. I don't, I don't know of a single language in this country that has the Word of God in its language, not in an accurate form. All right, so, Lord, Lord helping us, we will start with Luganda and get it into the Luganda language and, and get it out to the, to the Buganda people. But that, that is, you, you are supposed to be very interested in the preservation of God's word, in the dissemination of God's word, 
getting it out to people. That's why we print all those tracts. That's why we hand them out. That's why we have all those John and Romans. We want the Word of God. That's called sowing the seed. Get the Word of God into people's hands. All right? That is supposed to be a, a major interest of every Christian. Thus the Scriptures are preserved and passed on by us. At this point, we are no longer focused on a particular testament, but rather the Bible as a whole. Once the church gets involved, the body of Christ... The New Testament scriptures are inspired and written. Now you have the complete Bible from Genesis to Revelation all in one package. All right. Uh, the Old Testament is preserved through the line of what? This is, this is principle number three. Where did, the New, where did the Old Testament in English come from? What text? Masoretic. Text. Where the New Testament come from? Textus receptus, or the received text, since YB wants to be funny. Now, where did the Textus receptus come from? Just a few names for the text where it came from. Byzantine, traditional, the major, all of that. Yeah, very good. So that the, the Byzantine text and the traditional text or the Byzantine text and the traditional text are different words for essentially the same thing. Okay, the same thousands of manuscripts that make up those texts. They were condensed into one readable Greek volume in the Textus Receptus. So they took the thousands of texts that exist, Erasmus and the men that, that followed him up to Theodore Beza, they, they basically went through those texts. They identified the ones that were complete, the ones that had everything there. They used the Latin Vulgate, which came from those same texts, but were in an, a much older Latin version. And they condensed it all into, for the first time, you had a, a published New Testament in the Greek language in one book. Otherwise, you'd have to go find some Roman Catholic monk who had that text in his possession and convince him to let you see it. <laughs> Which, if you were not important and didn't have money, probably wasn't going to happen. So, so that's, that's where we are when we get to the Textus Receptus. Number four, the printing of the Masoretic Text as well as the Textus Receptus further facilitated the preservation of God's Word. Printing became, I mean, you've you got to imagine that, what a huge invention that was. Just massive I mean, it changed the world. It was so important. And the primary use of printers when they were made was printing the Bible <laughs> in different forms. So, so, I mean, of course, they printed all sorts of things, but a printer would often be tied up printing the Textus Receptus or, you know, uh, the Masoretic Text or the Psalms or, uh, you know, I mean, all sorts of various aspects of the Bible Men that had the money and could get the permission would, would get it printed. And so it tied up much of the work of a printer. Principle number five. Over the centuries, Bible-believing Christians only use God's word. Improper texts may have been used briefly throughout time, but they were eventually set aside for the true word of God. So God used the priesthood of the saints... And they would only use God's word. 
Now, this is where part of the struggle is because God's people went back and forth over time. And, and you see that in English. Now it's a huge problem. English-speaking Christians are so confused today, they don't know what to do. If you, if you go to a Christian bookstore in America and you just go to the shelf that has Bibles on it, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to get dizzy. You're going to be there for hours. And you're going to be wondering, if, if you have any sense of integrity, you're going to start saying to yourself, all these can't be right. One has to be right and the others have to be wrong or all of them have to be wrong. And, and so it's, it's a master form of deception by the devil to present people the false word of God on a mass scale and they struggle to find the word of God. And, and when I first got saved, I had an ESV. I had no idea what a KJV was. I didn't even know the, I didn't know the argument even existed. And I came across a guy on, on the internet because I, I got saved in Saudi Arabia. Not a lot of churches to go to and learn the Bible in Saudi Arabia. So I'm listening to guys on the internet, and I came across a guy on the internet who was talking about the difference between the King James Bible and other Bibles. I was like, what is that all about? So I go back home after leaving Saudi Arabia. Uh, I was there for about two months after I got saved. I denied my next contract. I just wanted to go home and go to church. So I go home, and my great-grandmother, I had two, two very godly great-grandmothers, and they were old-school Southern Baptists. And if you don't know what that means, that's okay. But it's, it, it means that at one time, the Southern Baptist Convention was worth existing. <laughs> now it's not. <laughs> and so uh, I wanted to see what Bibles my great-grandmothers used. Now, my great-grandmothers, one of, the, one of them was, she was kind of a smart business lady. But the other one, she died when she was 89 years old. She went to the same church for 89 years. She lived on the same street for 89 years. When she moved out of her old house into her new one, she built a new house across the street. <laughs> she was just an, an old country girl. She raised pigs and, and cows and chickens and had a huge 350-acre farm. She was just a country girl. She had no, no education. I want to know what Bible she used. Both of them used the King James Bible. And I was like, okay. So in my mind, that meant somewhere people got off track because the people that I know who loved God, this is what they're using. And then today you have <laughs> any number of English Bibles that you can play with S somewhere. Something got off track. And I think the King James Bible is probably where things started. So I began looking into it, began studying it and came to understand that my ESV was missing verses, and I was done. That was it. That was all I needed to know. Now, when I show someone that their ESV is missing verses, and they say, that's ah, okay. Either you're not one of God's people, or you're so reprobate and your conscience is so defiled that you can't, you can't feel the Holy Spirit punching you in the ribs right now saying, you need to listen to this. <laughs> so, anyways, all that from principle number five. Number six. The King James Bible is translated from the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. And the King James Bible is translated from the Textus Receptus for the, for the New Testament. This progression of historically accurate and obvious events will lead you to the King James Bible as the Word of God. Okay, so if you, you, follow, the, you follow what happened. 
Old Testament priests uh, preserved God's word through, through making copies of copies. They eventually put together what came to be the collected Masoretic text. That's a collection of, of what we know today as our Old Testament compiled together into one text. Okay, that's, I hope you have that. I hope through all this you're getting that in your mind. They went from thousands of copies of these texts scattered all over the world to now we have an assembled version of it in the Masoretic text in one location in one book that, that we can easily print and disseminate and give out to other people and they can have the Word of God in one book versus a ton of papyri and and vellum and, and all these different manuscripts that you can't touch, you can't get your hands on. They're preserved in a museum or some monk has it in his, his monastery or the Roman Catholic Church has it in the Vatican and you can't get to it. Now in the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus, all of it is condensed into one book. And even better, in the King James Bible, the Old and the New Testament are in one Bible together. That's huge. So this is the progression of events that got us there. All the way to the King James Bible. All right. So those are six principles of textual consistency. Now, <clears throat> biblical preservation. We've talked a lot about how God used men. We've talked about manuscripts. We've talked about copies. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff some more in, in a little while. But what does the Bible say about preservation? Wouldn't that be like a good thing to know? <laughs> If you want to know about the preservation of the Word of God and you're going to make statements, you're going to make accusations, you're going to make assumptions about its preservation, what did God say about its preservation? What did God say about keeping His own Word? Wouldn't that be somewhat important? So we're going to look at biblical preservation. We're going to ask God, what do you have to say about this? Despite the theories and the seminaries and the arguments and, and all the other garbage that's going on, what does God say? Turn to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12, and we'll read verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation for how long? Okay, so either God did that or he lied. And if God lied about preserving his word and his word is stuck on some on some disintegrated piece of paper from thousands of years ago and never made it to us today, then God lied. And if God lied about that, what else did he lie about? Do we have salvation? How do you know? You don't have God's word. You can't be sure you have God's word. You don't know what God said. You're in serious trouble. If Christ be not risen, you are yet in your sins. What if that didn't happen? What if the Muslims are right? Muslims say that God didn't keep his word. They, they claim that it, it, it was destroyed over time. And we're going to talk about that in a second, a little bit more. But 
What do we do? We don't have God's word. So everything we're doing right now, this entire property, the Bibles, the tracks that we spend tons of money on and try to and spend hours getting out to people, the buildings, all the people here, everything you've been spending your time doing means absolutely nothing. You've just wasted it all. Or God is true and what God said is true and we can trust him. Now, you're going to put yourself in one camp or the other. You're going to be with Dean John Burgeon, who believes this book is the truth. Or you're going to be with Westcott and Hort, and you're just playing religion, pretending to believe this Bible because it can get you in kind of a notable situation. Or you can be a pastor and people look up to you. And, and then you can pretend to be intellectual by telling them that you've got to have the Greek and the Hebrew, which they don't have and can't read. So... You want to be very careful about your motivations because it's going to help direct you in your situation. (laughs) So, pure. What does pure mean? Pure, the definition of pure is, is, is very interesting. It means no add mixture. Now, we're tempted to say there's no error. That's not what it means. If I say I have pure gold, uh, YB and I today, we're talking about gold. Pure gold. God says the streets in heaven, his tarmac, (laughs) his asphalt, it's gold. But if I say that gold is pure, that means there is nothing in that gold but gold. So they take gold out of the earth. It has different metals in it, it has rocks in it, it has different, it has admixture in it. And then they take it to a smelter, a smelting pot and they melt it down and they try to burn out anything other than the gold. So then when they pour that gold back out and they form it into bricks or they make it into a necklace or whatever they do with it, they'll tell you it's pure gold. But then this is what they stamp on the front of it. It's as close as we can get. It's not 100%, but it's real close. All right. Now, 0.999, that's pretty good. That's, That's close to pure. But that's not what God says. God says, when it comes to my word, there is zero admixture. Not even the slightest amount of admixture of anything. So if you take that and you put it with the fact that the, the word of God did not come by the will of man. That means man had no opportunity to add anything or to take anything away. It's pure. Okay, now let's say you want to put that to the test. Like, I don't know about that. Let's, let's put that to the test. Well, let's see what God says about that. Look, look back at the verse, verse 6. Wait, is that where we are? Yeah, verse 6. The word of the Lord of pure words as silver, what? What is that next word? Tried. God said, my word has been tried. And it has been found pure. How many times was it tried? In a furnace of earth purified seven times. Now, I'm not big on numbers in the Bible, but... But one of the few numbers that does stand out in the Bible almost every time is the number seven. What does it mean? Perfection. 
completion every time. God said, my word has been tried seven times and nobody found a single problem. Then he continues. Verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Okay, so stop there. Who is keeping them? The Lord. All right, so that brings us back here. So how did man mess that up? If the Lord is... So raise your hand if you believe you're, you're saved and you cannot lose that salvation. Well, why can't you lose it? Because the Lord is keeping you, right? Okay, so if you've turned yourself over the Lord and the Lord is keeping you, why can't that same Lord keep His Word? How is it that He's going to get you to heaven, but His Word? I don't know about that. You can trust that same God to keep His Word the same way that same God said He's going to keep you. It's no different. Now, how long did He say He's going to keep them? Now, it's very interesting, and this is, this is the beauty. The, the English language is, is an incredible language. If you, if you read uh, uh, just high-level English writers over the years, and you see what they can do with the English language, it's, it's unbelievable. All right? He said, from this generation forever. Which generation? This one. Well, what about the last one? That one, too. What about the one when they read this, when they made the Masoretic text? That one too. This generation, whatever generation that is, he's going to keep it from that generation forever. And there will be nothing that men can do about that. So either God is going to do that and has done that, or God is a complete liar, and you don't have the word of God, and you don't know what God wants. I tend to lean towards the direction that he probably has a clue what he's doing, and he's done that. And we have it. Now, Islam will tell you the Bible is God's word. But, then at the same time, they will tell you it was corrupted. Now, the Quran says, the Quran, not the Hadiths, not, not Muslim apologists, not any of these other people. I, I, now, I want to show you the, the folly in this. And, and it'll, it'll help you dealing both with Christians who don't believe they have the Word of God, or, or they wouldn't say that. They tell you they believe they have the Word of God, but it's in the originals, which they don't have, which means they don't have the Word of God. And Muslims who say, now the Quran says, uh, the book, which is a reference to the Old Testament, and the Injil, which is a reference to the New Testament. The Quran talks about both of these openly and, and often. And says that both of these books were given by Allah. Now who is, if, if, we, if we take the word to mean generally what it means, what does the word Allah mean? God. So according to them, God gave these two books, right? Well, in these two books, this God promised he would preserve forever and he would protect 
forever. All right, so in the same Quran and in the Hadiths, they say that these books were corrupted. Okay. Now here's the problem. You're telling me in the Quran that Allah gave us the Old Testament and gave us the New Testament, that they are God's words. Yes. Okay, and then you're telling me that, that somehow God's words came to be corrupted, so then God had to send us the Quran. Right? Yes. Okay. And you're telling me the Quran has no, no errors, no problems, it's the perfect word of God. Yes. You've got a big problem now. What they, they, what they don't know is I just set them up and they just stepped in a big hole and they're about to fall and they don't know what to, they're going to have no way out of it. If God gave this book and in this book he promised he would preserve it. And God gave this book and in this book he promised he preserved it. But God was so weak he failed to preserve it. How then could he preserve this book? So if God promised in the New Testament, I'm going to preserve my word. And God promised in the Old Testament, I'm going to preserve my word. But then God did not preserve his word. Not only is he a liar and weak and incapable of keeping his word, that means when we get to the Quran, it's impossible that the weak God who couldn't keep the Old and New Testament somehow kept the Quran. So nobody has the word of God. It's illogical. The Quran is full of logical errors. I mean, just blatant, Ill, inco, inconsistency, incoherent, illogical, makes no sense whatsoever. It's, it's, complete, it's full of them. And this is one of the many. All right, so the Lord said, from this generation forever. All right? I, I would trust God on that. Uh, God will not allow any generation to corrupt his word. All right, turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And we'll look at verses 7 through 11. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Perfect. What a statement to make. Does anybody know of anything in your life that you can honestly say, unequivocally, it is perfect? Now, I, I think my wife is perfect. But, <laughs> there might be some areas where we have some issues. Because she can't be as perfect as me. Right? Monica, right? <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. I have a wonderful, wonderful wife. I married way up in life. But could I say, could I say in all honesty, she is absolutely perfect. In the way that this man, this man said the word of the Lord is perfect. No qualifications, no perfect, but, you know, you know sometimes uh, <laughs> she's perfect, but at times we, we kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> no. 
the word of the Lord is perfect. Period. He didn't have to stop and explain what he means by perfect. He didn't have to give qualifiers to it. He is telling you what you have in this book is perfect. That's that's a big statement. Back to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Okay, if you don't have the perfect law of the, law, of, of the Lord, your soul cannot be converted. You don't have God's word. You're in trouble. You're lost. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Okay, again, what in your life can you say, that thing, it is sure. I have a Honda motorcycle. Honda makes Great stuff. It's dependable. It's pretty sure. (laughs) But can I say, again, unequivocally, that every single time I get on that motorcycle, it's going to start and it's going to go exactly where I want to go and never have a single problem. No. This man said, God's word is sure. You can be certain. Um, making wise the simple. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are (laughs) right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, Yea, then much fine gold. Okay, if you could get your hands on gold or have the Word of God, God said you better choose the Word of God. But what if you could get your hands on that, that .99 gold? By the way, what was it? One ounce is 28 grams. 28 grams of .99 gold is worth $1,800. Just 28 grams, one ounce. God said if you could get the most fine gold in the world or you could have the word of God, you better choose the word of God. Now, if you can have both, that's great. (laughs) But if you have to choose one or the other, you better choose the word of God. You better choose the word of God. Um, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's even better than grasshoppers. Verse 11, moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great, great reward. Okay, so you can take the temporary reward of much fine gold, or you can take great reward that comes from God because you stuck with the word of God. Now, the word of the Lord is perfect. It is sure. They are right. Right. Okay, I want to do what's right in my life. Do what this says. I want to make the right decision. What did God say about that situation? I want to be right. The word of the Lord is right. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. I don't want uncleanness in my life. I want to be pure. I don't want to be .999999 pure. I want to be... The word of God pure. I want to be right. I want to be holy. 
and they are true and righteous. That's what God said about His Word. Pure. Pure. Okay, so if this book is not pure, then it is not the Word of God. And if the King James Bible is not the Word of God, we have a big problem because nothing compares to it in existence. Where's the Word of God if it's not here? You've got a big, big problem that I don't know that there's a solution to other than going to a completely different language that had the Word of God like Martin Luther's Bible in German or the Old Latin Vulgate. But there's another problem there. I don't speak or read German and I definitely don't speak or read Latin. But I have an English Bible here that says God's Word is pure. And when I study this Bible, I find it to be seven times pure. And when I examine the words in this book, I find it to be even more pure. I find no problems here. So why, why did God struggle to get it into English? What is the problem? The problem is men don't want to be subject to God. Men want important positions, so you have to pretend to be important in order to get some of those important positions. I don't care about a position. I care about this book. I have enough problems. I don't need a position. (laughs) I need this book. All right, Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. See what God messed up here. (laughs) I mean, it's just going to start off all, all wrong. Every word. Now we got a big problem. God is making a claim here. Every idea. Is that what it says? Okay. Every thought. Is that what it says? Every word. Every word of God. That's a big claim. And so men today don't think God is up for the task. So we probably need to go back to Greek and help God out. Or we need to have multiple translations or multiple versions so we can make sure God, you know, maybe he messed something up. Now the NIV, this is one of the follies, one of the many follies of the NIV. Um, I forget the term for it. But they they claim to have translated the ideas, not the words. So when you read something like the NIV, they're trying to give you their impression of the idea God was expressing. Okay, let's go back to our passage, Proverbs 30, verse 5, and let's see what God says about that. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe we shouldn't read that. (laughs) Maybe we should pretend like that's not there. Or maybe I should develop a healthy fear of God so I don't stand in a pulpit and say, let me tell you what God really meant here. Let me tell you what this is in the Greek. And... 
through that process, add to God's word or take away from God's word when he very clearly said multiple times, don't you do that. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. You can trust God. You cannot fully trust You can't trust me to say everything right and to teach you everything right. You can always trust this book. And in so long as what I'm saying is in accord with what this book teaches, you're safe. You're okay. Every word in this book is pure. You have no liberty to change or to suggest there's a problem with a single word. Okay? In the English language... That's a word. You can't change one of those in the King James Bible. This is a word. Small word, if. (laughs) Every single word of God is pure. So you need every word. Now that's the amazing thing of the NIV, the RV, the RSV, the ESV, every one of them. Okay, God just said here, every word of God is pure, right? So which word is okay to remove out of the Bible? Okay, but every one of these Bibles, so-called Bibles, books, corrupt books, removed Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Where Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you not see the folly in that? You remove the passage that tells you you need every word of God. And when you run the cross-reference to that, you get to Proverbs 30 where God said every word of God is pure. And then in the very next verse, he says, don't add to my word. (laughs) So, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, my words, not my ideas, not my thoughts, my words shall not pass away. Now this is... This is important. This has, this has deeper implication into what we've been talking about, um, which I'll just show you quickly and then we'll move on as I really want to get through this material tonight so we can move to the second half of the course next week. If heaven and earth shall pass away, okay, now this is, this is uh, conceptually, this is a problem we have, okay? Men are looking for a physical document in terms of preservation of God's word. Okay? But heaven and earth will pass. All right? Peter said the Lord is going to dissolve heaven and earth with a fervent heat and it's going to be gone. All right, so you don't need to save the earth. You don't need to save the whales. I mean, you can save the whales if you want. I don't know. I guess everybody's got to have a hobby. That's up to you. But 
the earth is going to make it until God uses global warming to destroy it. <laughs> global warming on a scale that you don't even, you don't even understand. Right? God said, I'm going to burn the earth down to the ground. Which means everything physical in the earth will burn up. So, so what that people have in their mind is, I guess this book is going to like float to heaven and, and not be burned up because it's a Bible? No. There will be nothing. This is the image you should have in your head of that time. At that point in time, people are hiding behind rocks and, and, and crying out to the mountains, fall on me. And then when the Lord returns, heaven and earth flee from his face. So imagine you're hiding behind something and it runs away. <laughs> and then the Lord burns the earth and burns the heaven. And now you're standing in the middle of nothing before a great white throne and you're about to answer to that God. There's not going to be Bibles and manuscripts laying around in the middle of nothing. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? The, the, you know, we're, 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 we're tracing the physical documents through history to demonstrate that the King James Bible came from the Word of God throughout history. Okay? But people have in their mind that there's this, this magical document that exists, and it's going to exist forever. <laughs> and that's what we're referring to when we say that that's where the Word of God came from. And that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, and when everything burns down, your Bible is probably going to burn with it. The Word of God is settled in heaven. The Word of God will not pass away. That doesn't mean every physical copy of a Bible is going to go floating up to heaven with us when the Lord calls us up to meet Him in the air. God has His Word. It's not a problem for Him to reproduce it. You talk about a memory, um, He's not struggling. God chooses what He wants to forget. Think about that. God says, your sins, or you say you trusted in Christ? Okay, I will no longer remember your sins. Like, if I told you that, they're in the back of my mind. I'm going to think about it every day. <laughs> God says, I have made a choice. I am not going to remember your sins anymore. It's gone out of my mind. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the Word of God, just, yeah, I can tell you exactly what it says. That's no problem for God whatsoever. And somehow God's people lost sight of that. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I forgive you. Yeah, right. I promise. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And we've read this one before in this class. But it's worth reading again. Some scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. No? <laughs> What's the problem? Is that not what I'm saying when I tell you, well, this word in the Greek, what it actually is, is something other than what God put here. I'm telling you that the passages that, according to my opinion, 
are safe for you to believe in the English, those are okay. But other verses of Scripture here, God's ability to inspire those words was a little off that day. And he made some mistakes, but I'm going to fix it for him, so it's okay. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Okay, so if you don't have all the Scripture that was inspired by God, you have no doctrine. You, you can teach what you want. You can make up what you want, but you don't have doctrine from God. Uh, for reproof. How can I reprove you if I don't know what God said? How can you reprove me if we don't know what God said? It's my opinion and your opinion. We just go off who, whoever. I have a bigger gun than you, so we're going to go with what I say. <laughs> That's, you know, when, when they teach in evolution that it's survival of the fittest, if there's no God, it absolutely is. Whoever has the biggest guns, they're right. <laughs> Whoever has the most power, they're right. Now, are they right in any technical sense? No. But if there, if there is no absolute truth for us to refer to, then there's nothing for us to gauge who's right and who's wrong. It's everybody's opinion for himself. Um, for correction. How do we correct people if we don't know what is correct? For instruction in righteousness. Where are we going to get righteousness if we, don't, if we don't have a book that teaches us how to be righteous? But we do. We, we have all that. Now, the originals could only be found when God delivered them to the men who received them. All right, and I'm going to demonstrate that very clearly to you here in, in, in just a moment. We've talked about some of these passages, but we're going to look at them. Uh, hopefully we get through all of them tonight. But it, by the very nature of the word original, if you're going to use the word in accord with its definition, right? If I tell you, if I tell you this is an original King James Bible, what am I saying? I'm telling you, this goes all the way back to 1611. And it doesn't. This is a copy of 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 a copy. Thousands and thousands and maybe even millions and millions of times over. But it says what that book says. It is not an original. If you have an original 1611 King James Bible, let me know. We can call some dealers and you can make a lot of money. <laughs> but you don't. So you have to trust that God did what he said he's going to do. He preserved his word. Okay, where did he preserve it? Well, in the English langu language, we can objectively demonstrate that this book came from the word of God. In the German language, I can objectively demonstrate that Luther's Bible came from the word of God. In the Old Latin Vulgate, if you follow all the documentation, you can see that it came from the Word of God. It was accurately translated into the Latin language and was used widely throughout Europe for hundreds of years. The Word of God can be found in many languages, in many forms, all over the world, historically and objectively demonstrated. We have it in the English language. Praise God. Not every language has it. Not everybody had this opportunity. But we do, and it's precious, and it means that you're going to be held to a higher standard before God than everyone else. Congratulations. You better do something with it. <clears throat> 
The originals do not exist, but most Baptist churches say they believe the Word of God in the originals. The originals do not exist, so when these churches say that, they are in fact saying they believe nothing. You can't. You don't have that. You, if I tell you I believe, I believe the Word of God, I believe, you know, I am telling you that I believe what Buddha said is absolutely true. Oh, well, have you read it? Not a word. <laughs> I don't know where it is. I don't have a copy of it. So then I would be what? A liar. So when a church says, we believe the word of God in the originals, you can't say that and be honest. That is not a statement you can make and, and, and be true to people. You don't have the originals. You've never seen the originals. And again, we've been through this a thousand times. They're talking about the Texas Receptus. Okay, which one? Have you read that? Do you have a copy? Do you have a Greek New Testament that identifies with the Texas Receptus in your hands, in your possession, and you can read it and you verify that it's true? No. You can't make that statement. I can tell you I know this book is true. I've read it. I've studied it. I know its historical lineage. I know where it came from. I know how it got here. I know how miraculous that was. I know how men have tried their best to destroy it, but somehow God managed to keep it alive every single time, almost effortlessly, and it's still here today. And by the way, no book has influenced the entire world more than this book. This one. Not Luther's, though that, that book had a major influence on the, on the world. Not the Latin Vulgate, though that it had, a, had a major influence. This book altered history in a way that no other book has. You can't say that about any other book. It's, it's right there. So when it comes to preservation, men try to limit God to the abilities of men. Men might struggle with, for coherency. Men might fail to reproduce what, uh, that which was written previously. Furthermore, men might fail to transfer what they wrote from one language to another. But we can demonstrate all through God's word and repeatedly that God does not struggle with these issues. That's not a problem for God. If God's in it, it was done right and you can trust it. It is very safe to say that a major movement of God brought this book into existence and has kept this book into, in, in, in existence. All right, now... I want to show you, I, I want to demonstrate to you from the Bible this level of preservation that we're talking about. And again, remember, heaven and earth is going to pass away, right? So we're not talking about the preservation of a document or a book or a physical object. We're talking about the preservation of God's word through the hand of God, okay? All right, Exodus 19. Let's try to go through these quickly, quickly. Exodus 19, Exodus 19 through 2017. All right, let's just read a couple of verses here. We don't need this whole passage, or we're not going to read the whole passage, but uh, look at verse 20, Exodus 19, verse 20. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priest also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest, lest the Lord break forth upon them. So the Lord is, 
is communing with Moses. He tells them, before we get to our business, I want you to go back down, tell those people, don't you touch that mountain. Don't come on the mountain. Don't come near the mountain. You and I are going to talk. They better not come near this mountain. All right, so he sends them back down to tell that. Look at verse 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. What's happening here? What, what is Exodus 20 the start of? Huh? The law. Everybody should know Exodus 20. Every Bible student should know Exodus 20. God begins delivering the law. Now, it's important to know the world has condensed Exodus 20 to the Ten Commandments. Um, there were hundreds of them, around 600 of them. And, I, and I'm not picking up. It's, it's in my notes. I was going to say it anyways. So God, God did not give Ten Commandments. Now, we limit ourselves to those ten because we can't even keep the first ten there were about 640 commandments written on these tablets. We're going to see in a moment it was written down the front side and down the back side on both tablets. It wasn't just 10 commandments. God loaded them down with his law and told them what he, what he expected of them. That began in Exodus 20. Now, come to Exodus 31. So, so that the passage here is Exodus 19 verse 20 to Exodus 20 to verse 17. That's That's where the Lord is giving, the beginning of the giving of His law. And in those passages in Exodus 20, the first 17, are what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. All right, come to Exodus 31. Verse 18. We're going to see what God gave to Moses. And He gave unto Moses, when He had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai. Now, this communion started in Exodus 19. <laughs> Where are we now? Exodus 30, 30, 31. And they're just now finished talking. <laughs> and he's just now getting the tablets to take them back. That, that's, that's a lot of commandments. <laughs> that's a lot of law to keep. You should thank God we don't have to keep the law. And that, that's not... That's not where we are. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. That's, that's pretty incredible. He, he gave him tables of stone that God himself wrote his law on with his finger. That, that, that'd be pretty amazing. That, I would like to think, okay, I'm not Moses. God said Moses was the most meek man to live. I would like to think that if I just met with God and he took his finger and wrote his law on tablets of stone right in front of me, when I get to the bottom of the mountain and find God's people dancing naked around a golden calf, I'm setting those down <laughs> and I'm going to find something else to throw. And Moses smashed the tablets. <laughs> um, you know, I have, I have a temper. I don't think I would do that. I don't know for sure, and I don't want to find out for sure, but I don't think I would, I would smash those tablets. I would be guarding those with my life, so I think. All right, now, according to the passage, who wrote the words? God did. With his own finger. That's incredible. God wrote these words with his finger. 
And he gave the tablets to Moses. Look at Exodus 32, verse 15. Verse 15 through 19. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tablets of testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. All right, you see that. Both tables written on both their sides. That's a lot of commandments. And God put it all on a tablet and wrote it with his finger. The two tablets of testimony were in his hand. The two tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said unto Moses, it sounds like a Pentecostal church in the camp. It sounds like Ugandans making an announcement from the back of a truck in the camp. There is a noise of war in the camp. Now think about that. What are they hearing? They're hearing the music. And Moses and Joshua says, the noise they're making sounds like war. The bass thumping, the, 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 you know, the, the, the beat, the style of the music. Moses hears that, he says, that sounds like war. That's not music. So that's why we don't play Bobby Wine in church. And that's why we don't, we don't, we don't follow after the Pentecostals. And we don't, we don't add any of these things to our church. And they shouldn't be in your life. What profit would there be in listening to any music of that sort if you're a Christian? There would be none. And, and if, if the music you're listening to makes people think, man, is there a war going on in there? <laughs> I, I'm going to guess it's probably not very godly music and you should probably move on to something else. That's, that's my suggestion. All right. Verse 18. And he said, it is not the voice of them. Now, this is funny. Okay. If you think about what Moses is saying. If you think about what the statement he's making here, all right, verse 18, and he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither of the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that, do, that sing do I hear. So if they're not going after mastery, then what are they doing? <laughs> they're a bunch of obnoxious amateurs just making noise. But I guess it's singing, I suppose, what it sounds like, I guess. Verse 19, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands. Why? Man, the tables out of his hands, and he brake them beneath the mount. Now, now we're going to... We're supposed to stop in verse 19. We're going to talk about that real quick. Verse 19. Moses just destroyed the only copy of the Word of God. So what are we going to do? It's over. That's the originals. So it's done. We can never have an accurate copy of God's law because Moses destroyed the originals. What are we going to do? Now, just for fun, let's read verse 20. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it into powder 
and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Now, look, I understand <laughs> the word of God can be tough and being confronted with the word of God can be tough, but nobody's ever done that to you. <laughs> so you should be thankful. We just use words and be mean to you. <laughs> we don't take whatever it is you're doing, burn it into powder, throw it in water and make you drink it. <laughs> I, my pastor always says, I want to see how Moses did that. <laughs> How did he make all those people? They estimate there's about 2 million people. And he makes them drink this water? How did he do that? That's not part of the lesson. It's just interesting thought. Verse 34, or chapter 34. All right, so he just destroyed the word of God. Everything's over. We can give up. Um, Moses ruined everything. God's in heaven biting his fingernails. Like, what am I going to do? Moses destroyed my only copy of the Word of God. Why did I trust him? I should have gave it to somebody else. Or, chapter 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in what? The first tables. Is God struggling here? Now, what I think is funny is God says, Moses, you go make the stones this time. <laughs> and then when you make them the same way I made the other ones, you bring them to me and I will write the exact same words on them again. It was no problem for God. It was not an issue for the Lord. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together. They didn't go dancing around a naked calf this time. I, I, either they still had that taste in their mouth or they realized Moses is not playing. <laughs> and, and so we should not do that. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that ye should do them. The second tablet, the copy, was just as authoritative as the original copy. And when Moses gathered all the people together and he showed them those tablets, he said, God expects you to do this. And then they said, yeah, but that's a copy. We can't know for sure that it's an accurate copy. It might have translation errors or, or copyist errors. <laughs> you better do what it says or God's going to deal with you. And, and in dealing people in accord with the law, it was not like dealing with people in the New Testament. God, was, was, God expected them to keep his law. And so whatever was written on the copy, those people were subject to, to those copies for thousands of years. The Jews had to obey those copies for thousands of years. And then you get to the New Testament and God said, those tablets... They are a schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. They're just as relevant to us today, and we have it. It's not missing. All right, now let's, let's go to Jeremiah 36. Let's look at another, another incident, very similar. Jeremiah 36, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 36, verse 1 and 2. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. Okay, so where did the words come from? The Lord. Who did he give them to? Jeremiah. So God made a mistake there. Why did he use a man? He should have sent an angel. God should have came himself. Look, at some point, in, in any scenario, if the words are going to get from God to men, then they have to leave God's hands and be put into the hands of men. It, it has to happen. So if your issue is that it was in the hands of men, <laughs> there's no way around that. What do you want God to do? To put a floating book in the sky that everybody can go and look at, but nobody can touch? No. You have a personal copy of the Word of God in your hands. And yes, men were involved, but God preserved His Word. All right, now go back to verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the, the, the uh, son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book. And write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. The Lord says, here are my words. Here's the time frame of the words that I gave you. You're going to take them and you're going to write them on that roll of a book. All right, now look at. Chapter 36, verses 20 through 24. Let's see how that went. And they went into the king, uh-oh, into the court. But they laid up the roll in the chamber with Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai. Now, this is, this is what happened. We, we didn't read it, and we don't have time to go back. God gave his words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah used uh, no, Barak. Jeremiah used Barak to record his words. All right, so God spoke to Jeremiah. Jeremiah gave the words to Barak. Barak wrote it down as Jeremiah, as Jeremiah said. And do you know what it was called after Barak wrote what he heard from Jeremiah, which he heard from God? The word of the Lord. God didn't say, why'd you use Barak? He can't write anything down, Correct. No, it was God's word after Barak wrote down what Jeremiah told him, which Jeremiah heard from God from this time span. God said, I want you to get it all written down. And that's, what, that's the process. That's what they did. If you go back and you read this whole chapter, that's what you'll find. All right, now verse 20. And they went into the king, into the court, and they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on, on, on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves... He cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Now, what's the assumption? They should have heard what God said and they should have been terrified. And they didn't care. He cut up God's word, the original copy, and he threw it in a fire. 
and it burned and it's gone. So again, what are we going to do? We don't have the original copy of the book of Jeremiah. We're stuck. I guess we're finished. God is not into preserving a physical document. God is preserving his words. They will exist somewhere for us to have in this life until the Lord burns this place down. Now look at, look at uh, verses 27 through 32. Let's, let's see what happened. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, <laughs> Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease uh, from thence man and beast. Verse 30, Therefore thus saith the Lord of, uh, of, the Lord of Jehoiakim king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day of the, of, of the heat, and in the night of the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them. But they hearkened not. Then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them <laughs> many like words. They destroyed God's word and they only made it worse for themselves. Now, God said that king, when he read those words, had a chance to fear and tremble and to bow down to God. He did not do that. So then God said, now I'm going to send your dead body out and I'm going to deal with your children for generations and you will never have a seed to sit on the throne of David. You don't want to toy with God's word. You don't want to play with it. God's word is to be believed and obeyed. It is not to be questioned and changed and destroyed and altered to your liking. We want to do what God said. Now, twice so far, we read of men completely destroying the only extant copy of God's word. And then what did God do? He just produced another one. If you burn every single King James Bible in existence, you're going to go, the very people who are burning it are going to go somewhere and they're going to find a King James Bible somewhere they didn't expect to find it. You're not going to get rid of God's word. It's important for us to remember God's not preserving physical documents. So if I can't find the original of God's word, who cares? God has his word. He's going to preserve his word. I want his word. He's going to make it available for me. You want his word? He's going to make it available for you. That's how it works. Let's look at one more. Look at um, Jeremiah 51, verses 59 through 64. 51-59. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, uh, when he went to Zedekiah, that would be a fun song to sing, the king of Judah into Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and this Sariah was a quiet prince, 
So Jeremiah wrote in a book, All the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see, and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the Euphrates River. And somehow we're reading it right now. He read the book, the only copy, tied a stone to it, and cast it into the Euphrates River. Who went and got it? But we're reading the words right now. It is not a problem for God to preserve His Word. It is not an issue for the Lord. A Bible view of translations. Get in your Bible three places. Colossians 1. Colossians 1. This won't take long. And uh, it's an interesting little study. 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel 3. And Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. All right, Colossians 1 first, verses 12 and 14. Verse 12. Give me thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath what? Translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Which was better? Where you were before, or was your translation into the kingdom of his dear Son better? The translation is better. All right, Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. Whose kingdom was better, Saul's kingdom or David's kingdom? So the translation was better, right? All right. Um, Hebrews 11, verses 5 through 8. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. uh, For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Which situation was better for Enoch? Walking on the earth in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah and the times of, of Genesis chapter 5, 6, and 7 before the flood or his translation into heaven. Okay. Now, I have to put a, I have to put a, uh, a warning label on this doctrine or this teaching. Um, this idea can be taken too far. Now, in any of these passages, did we read of God... In terms of translation, did God translate a language or a book? No. All right. So 
the, the idea is often taken a little bit too far, but this is the point. Oftentimes, anytime the word translation is mentioned in the Bible, the translation by God was better than the original every single time. Okay? Now, what, what, what guys do is they take that and they, and they use that to say that the King James Bible, as a translation, is better than the Greek and the Hebrew. And there is some minor truth to that, but it needs to be properly presented. Otherwise, you sound, like a, you sound insane um, because the King James Bible says what the Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Text says. How could it be better? Well, there are some ways it is better. Um, let me show you just a few. If I remember correctly, from the original, the original manuscripts, there are 5,255 that exist. Who can access one? Who can read one? But you can read your King James Bible, right? I just want to read through this quickly and see which ones I want to focus on. All right, so that's, that's, that's the first thing. The King James Bible we have, it is complete. It is the complete Word of God, old and new, in one book. Look, look you're in Hebrews 11. If you're still in Hebrews 11, look at, look at four. let's look at verse 4. Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel. Who's Abel? So how do you know that? It's in your Old Testament. If all you had was the book of Hebrews, if all you had was the Textus Receptus, which is the New, New Testament, who is Abel? Where would you go to learn who Abel is? Right, well, let's keep reading. Uh, Offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Who's Cain? Hey, you read through these names like you know these people. But you have a complete Bible. You can find out who they are. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch. Who's Enoch? And how did he walk with God and now he's not walking with God? Where would you go to, to learn that and read about that? You have that in your complete Bible in one book. Do you see how amazing that is? Otherwise, you'd be reading the book of Hebrews and say, I don't know who these people are. The roll call of faith. They had faith. I, I don't know who they are. Who's Abraham? How are you going to learn about who? Who's Sarah? Who's Rahab? <laughs> You'd have no idea. You have no way to know if you don't have a complete Bible. And, and in that way, the, the translation is far superior than the Masoretic text or the Textus Receptus because the Masoretic text is what? The Old Testament and the Old Testament alone. So you're going to read... You're going to read uh, about the man of sorrows and Isaiah. Who is that? When was Jehovah pierced in the Old Testament? That's one of the best things, one of the best places to take a Jehovah's Witness. Because they change their Bible, every time God's name is mentioned, they change it to Jehovah because they think God's only name is Jehovah. Though the Bible says he has many names, they change them all to Jehovah. Well, when they did that, it says that Jehovah was pierced. They set themselves up for failure. They don't believe Jesus is Jehovah. So when was Jehovah pierced? 
Not, I mean, it's your, it's your Bible. You changed it. <laughs> Who's Jehovah and how, how was he pierced? Who got to this great Jehovah that you so love and you think is so powerful and pierced him? And they don't. Uh, what they'll do is they'll find out that they made a mistake there and they'll go back and they'll change it again. So the next time you try and see it, it won't be there anymore. That's that's see, we have to play by rules. They don't have any rules, but they're going to make some dumb mistake. It's like, so so Mormons claim to be the lost tribe of Ephraim. Well, God said, Ephraim, I've left. I, I, God kicked Ephraim out and said, I've left Ephraim to her idols. You couldn't have chose Levi or like you. These these false religions make the stupidest choices, and they don't even know it. On the Book of Mormon, the the cover of the book, it says another testament of Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we or an angel preach any other gospel, and you have a book that says another testament of Jesus Christ, you're just you're blind. You don't even know what you're doing. It's it's sheer ignorance. And I appreciate it because it makes our job easier, but you, you didn't think this through all the way. So in, in this way, our King James Bible, it's coherent, it's perfect, because we have the old, we have the new. Uh, secondly, uh, the layout of the King James Bible is superior. I showed you how the manuscripts looked. I'll try to, I'll try to um, get a printed, I'll try to print out a copy of what it looked like so you can get the full effect. Um, it was... It was not easy to read. And, and they did that because it's all they had available and they needed to fit everything on that document they could. And so an unseal or a majuscule or a minuscule, it had, like we, all night tonight, I said, turn to this, this, this book, chapter, and verse. And you all did it with no trouble, right? Because the layout of this book is far superior to the layout of, of the originals. Um, now, I don't know... I haven't gone to look to see what the layout of the Texas Receptus was, but you know the, the divisions we have in terms of the numbering and the, and the chapter headings and all that in our Bible, they didn't come to much later uh, in, in, in the creation of this book. So I would venture to say the Texas Receptus is probably hard to read and navigate and find your way around in. And so there are ways in which the King James Bible is superior. Um, but some go so far as to say, I mean, some of our brethren who, who are King James only, they almost replace God with this book. And you can't do that. This book helps you to know God. God is to be worshipped. The book is not to be worshipped. Okay, that, that, that's a very important distinction. Now, the book is required in order to worship God in truth which is what God desires, right? But you've you got to have the book, but you don't worship the book. The book is not God. The book helps you know God. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.